Hello again. This is Discover More, a podcast for independent thinkers who appreciate the importance of nuances with mental health as a through line. My name is Benoit Kim, an Ivy League educated policymaker turned psychotherapist and a world class interviewer, according to my mom, that is. Why is there a mental health crisis in America and what can we do about it? Today's conversation with an Emmy Award winning journalist. Will reveal exactly how culture influences community mental health care and the history of mental health stigma in the United States. Antonio Hilton is an Emmy Award winning journalist and news anchor at NBC News, reporting on politics and civil rights, and the co host of the hit podcast, South Lake. Expect to learn about how culture influences community mental health, the history of mental health stigma in the United States. Why the culture of America is sick, the danger of bystander effects, why pain does not discriminate, and much, much more. Let's get this started. Antonio, welcome to Discover More. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, as you know, Jim Crow laws were reinforced until 1965, which means it has been almost 60 years by the time this conversation goes live. So, why this book and why now? This book looks at Jim Crow, but in a space that I think very few people ever think those laws, that culture, that reality actually applied to. And that is our mental health treatment spaces, our asylums, our hospitals. I think often when people think about the history of Jim Crow, they have these black and white images in their mind of water fountains with this label and that label, or a pool with that label, you know, or a school, right? And, and that's all very real. But even spaces, you know, as ostensibly therapeutic and for healing as hospitals. We're subjected to the same kind of separation of races, clear cultural divides, and the, all the power dynamics that come with that. And one of the things that drew me to the story of madness, to studying mental health systems, was to try to understand when we look at the way our mental health system functions now, and we look at the way different communities have relationships to therapists and psychiatrists. Sometimes those things, they fall along racial lines. So, what inspired that? Why does our system work this way? And I would argue that you cannot understand our current, somewhat broken mental health care system. You can't understand the ways in which different communities, particularly poor communities or communities of color, relate to doctors, relate to psychiatrists and therapists and psychoanalysts without knowing your history. Because 60 years ago, it may sound to people like a long time ago. My parents were alive for that. My grandparents very much lived, they lived through all that, right? And so the way in which they raised me, they talked about these issues and memories they have, of course, impacted the way that I was raised. And so if you apply that to everyone in your country, you can easily see the way in which that system still impacts all of us today. And so to me, we can't really move forward and imagine a better mental health care system without going back first. And so that's why I think this book. Or I believe, I hope this book is arriving at a special moment because we're in this place where so much of our country is debating our history and 
the roots and the realities of our country, but we're also in this place where everyone recognizes there's a mental health crisis and a need for more treatment. So how do we bring those two debates together? And I think this book is going to help with that. That's actually a great answer because one of the most shocking information from your book, Antonio, is that Crownsville Hospital, despite its long-standing racist history and origin story, did not close until 2004. This reminds me of how recent and still present racism and altruism, as you said in the underlying thesis of your response, are in our society, despite how progressive our society presents itself as. Any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. It closed down in 2004, but it was founded in 1911. And you can see, because the book goes in chronological order, my research went in chronological order, the way in which every era builds upon the era before it. So nothing arrives in a vacuum. So what's happening in 2004 can't be divorced from what was happening in the 1990s, 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s. You get my point, going all the way back Mm -hmm. to 1911. And so when you look at the founding of this hospital, which I think to most Americans is still completely unknown. So I'll, I'll break that down briefly. Crownsville is the only hospital that I've been able to find in my research in the United States that forced its own patients to build it from the ground up. And that was very much informed. It was informed by the beliefs of white doctors at the time who believed that formerly enslaved people were different than white people, couldn't be treated alongside them, and that they needed to be segregated for their mental health care treatment. And that the best treatment for them would look something like slavery. And so they put patients to work. They justified a sort of re-enslavement in a clinical setting. Mm. And when you look at that founding in 1911, it sets the hospital up for a really complicated and fraught history that entire century. So in 2004, although things look very different by that point, everything that's been set in motion by 2004, you can trace back to some of the original decisions and attitudes of the people who were there in 1911. I sense a thesis of explicit versus the implicit. And I think what's concerning reading your book is a lot of these white doctors and air quote helpers actually truly believed that they were helping people through this segregated clinical work. There is a white savior complex we all know about, right? But I think a lot of people get fixated and only look at the explicit and they forget the implicit. History is so important to this, right? Because you can use history to actually have more empathy for people, even as you criticize them. Because these doctors are raised in a world, in a setting in which they've only ever been trained and told to look at people of color in a particular way. Mm. And they genuinely are writing these papers and believing that what they've decided as paternalistic and violent as it is, that that's the best way to treat people. They think they are the leaders of our country. I mean, they're writing papers that are shared all over the country. They're some of the most respected doctors in their fields at the time. And while there was intellectual debate, you know, you can, you can see some of that in, in their writings. Many of them kind of pat, they were patting each other on the back, thinking that this is the way that this is. Frankly, reflected in the historical record, that is the way that life and the structure of American social society had been, right? And so even when they're introduced to new information or 
they actually start working with and living with Black people. It takes a long time for all of the both implicit and very explicit beliefs they have about Black people to shift it all. And it's really not until the mid 20th century when Black employees arrive and they start working with patients and pushing back on their white bosses and giving them new suggestions about how to take care of people. As simple as, can I take some people outside who you haven't let go outside in years? I mean, just that, that basic, you know? And it starts to shift the culture. But so long as only one type of people, one group of people gets to run a place, and that's what you see in Crownsville for several decades, for the beginning to the middle of the 20th century, is only white people are allowed to have jobs there. There's no intellectual diversity. There's no change in thought. There's very little debate on how to run this place. And so there's this one vision, one very racist idea about how to do this form of care. And it's not changed until new people arrive. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, that history does not repeat itself. People do, right? Because as you talked about it, the idiosyncratic beliefs, the implicit biases that we hold. But I do want to use that as an entry point to ask you this question. In chapter 17, you said when President Nixon came to the office, he wanted to review the efficacy of government-funded mental health programs, not because he was a Republican and hated these fundings, but he wanted to assess the available hard evidence. I think this is especially relevant in today's deep, chasmic divide in the social-political landscape we live in. Any thoughts? That section of the book is, is one of my favorites because... I think it's really easy to say one person became president like Nixon or Reagan became president and then they killed the dream of community mental health care. They got rid of all the funding because they're Republicans. And there's some truth to that. The two, those two presidents did play a role in slashing these programs, in reducing funding. And, and of course, their, their worldview, their political view plays a part in that. But really, the threads had been unraveling in our system for a really long time. And the will to take care of people who are suffering was lacking in all kinds of communities, Democrat, Republican, and everything in between. And I find that mental health is a really fascinating topic because everyone has a touch point for it. Having a loved one who has a substance abuse challenge, it might be yourself having experienced anxiety and depression and struggling to find help. And it's one of the last remaining areas, I think, right now that hasn't been completely polarized, where you can't even agree with the, a person who votes differently than you about what mental health means or, or what we all think is wrong with the system. Often people actually really agree and can identify that their community deserves more. And so I think one of the things I wanted to do in that section of the book is show you the way that the system unraveled and break down some of the assumptions you might have about who was at fault and how simply or quickly all of this happened. Because we can't just blame Nixon or Reagan. We can't just say, uh, oh, if only we could undo the policies of this one guy, it would all be better. The truth is we're all a bit at fault. And in every single community across this country, there was a lack of willingness to put up the dollars that were required to build the system that we all claimed and told lawmakers and said in community meetings that we wanted. Once the you know rubber hit the road and the going got rough, people didn't want to pay for it. And so I think that book is that section of the book is really important because it kind of calls on everyone to look at, okay, this there was this dream, there was this option here, this moment where our country could have done something different. And 
I'm not going to let you off the hook so easy. And once you can kind of reckon with that, it makes it easier to figure out how would we solve it and talk to people across the aisle about fixing it in the future. I sense the theme of common humanity in what you said. And I do want to go into the topic of intellectual diversity or thought diversity. And I think we're, it's unfortunate that we as a society, we're still grappling with ethnic and racial diversity. So I, we hope that we can come to a common ground to bypass the stage and really work on the thought diversity. Because I think intellectual and thought diversities are equally important. Because as you said, if we can really bypass some of these seemingly contentious points based on our preconceived ideas, origin stories, or whatever in between, we really need to think about like, what is the best way to move our society forward? It has to be multidimensional, right? Because complex situations and problems requires complex approach. But I think we humans, it's evolutionary psychiatry and psychology, we like the simplicity because simplicity implies certainty and certainty means safety. Nobody likes the unknown. But I do really want to go into intellectual diversity because you talked about it a few times. And that's something I've been really thinking a lot about this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as a journalist who covers politics, it's something that comes up in my personal life, my day to day all the time, mm. right? Of, you know, in this era we're living in, in which parts of our country just simply can't agree on the truth, on a set of facts. We're kind of in, in this crisis at the moment and finding it really hard to talk to people who don't see the world the same way that we do. And it's one of the things, again, that actually inspires me about the topic of mental health, because I think it might be a wedge. It might be a way to have some of these cross-community dialogues to interest people in a history that they might otherwise not have felt super connected to. Because what's so important to me about this work, right, is this isn't just like a, a Black history story. This isn't just a hey, here's this unknown thing and I found it and, you know, here's part of your heritage, which sometimes that's, that's what history feels like to people. It only belongs to one community or another. I'm really using the hospital and the story of Crownsville to tell an American story, to look at an American institution and system and show you that the consequences of what happened hurt all of us. It's not just Black people who are hurt day to day by the fact that many psychiatrists have really long waiting lists and they can't see you. The only people who are hurt by the fact that a lot of insurance refuses to cover these or there are clinicians who won't take insurance. They're not the only people who are hurt by the fact that a lot of places don't have enough beds open for inpatient treatment. And so at some point, right, we, we've got to let go of some of the differences we all have and the disagreements about our history that we have and we have to come together to the part where if we're all being hurt on this, how do we fix it? And I really do believe mental health is one of these last remaining areas in which you can connect with people in such a heartfelt level. Even if maybe someone doesn't know all the, the right words to use to describe mental illness or mental suffering, often they know someone, they live with someone, they themselves have gone through things, trauma, physical pain watching a loved one grief. It's a, a shared human experience as we try to figure out how to solve the information crisis and the polarization and tribalism in our country, looking for some of the subject matter, some of the topics where there's still less of the, that having infected everything 
And I think it's one of those like last frontiers for dialogue. And so I'm seeing this crisis in my day to day as a journalist. And I think one of the things that kept me so rooted in this story is that I kept coming back to it because I didn't see the same kind of dysfunction I was seeing everywhere else when it came to these conversations. The reason why skincare and cosmetics industry is one of the most lucrative industry because everybody has a skin, just like everyone has mental health, right? <laughs> Very yeah, simple as that. I like but that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like everyone has physical health. And that I think leads me into I would love to ask you to reveal some of your journalistic process with integrity. So how do you approach these seemingly contentious or disagreeing parties and folks with these touch points? Like what is your process and, and spotlight these common points? Because a lot of times we don't know what we don't know until we speak it into existence. You know, doing this work, it takes a lot of patience because you have to build trust and relationships with people. And that takes time, especially in the world we live in now. And so when I say I spent 10 years working on this, I really mean it. And in some cases, it took like five to seven years to convince a particular person to talk to me for this book. So you put that in perspective. <laughs> that's, that's phone calls. That's letters I wrote to people. That's visits I made to their homes, time I spent at their dinner tables or on their couches. And I really had to put in the work to be trusted by them. So that means reading everything. That means knowing. That means you know, doing the research, but it also means acknowledging what you don't know. I wasn't raised in, in Annapolis in Anne Arundel County where this book takes place, right? So I can't come in there and, and tell people in this community how they feel or what they want or what happened to them. I have to approach with humility. And I do that in all my work. So if I'm covering politics or education or a civil rights issue, I approach every interview, even with a powerful politician, with a certain level of humility and openness to being surprised or being wrong or having to change my thesis or hypothesis of how this reporting might go. That's such an important part of being a journalist and someone who wants to do this type of work is actually knowing what you don't know, remaining very humble and calm and thinking more about listening to people than what am I going to say next? That all of that is transformative for this kind of work. Because if you are thinking constantly about what you believe and what you want to say next, you really can't listen to people properly. And if you don't listen, you're not a good reporter. You're not a good writer. You're not a good storyteller. And so actually sitting there and, and sitting in the words that someone has shared with you, that makes all the difference. And it allowed me to really build a, a textured book here where I spoke to everyone from you know, low-ranking aides who were not seen as high on the totem pole at this hospital, right? To the, some of the superintendents who ran the hospital spoke to me for the book. To state leaders who gave me documents. To patients who maybe had never confided in people their own mental health challenges. You get there by listening. You get there by showing your own intellectual curiosity and openness to others. And so those are the real principles that I think, you know, for anyone interested in doing this work or anyone who is trying to find journalists who they can trust, who they can like, looking for people who listen and who are open to, to being wrong or to exploring, I think that's really the key. It's the same through line with looking for a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst. If they talk more than you do, and if they give blanket advices, 
run away, go to the other side, because that is highly unethical, period. You interviewed more than 40 formal patients and employees of Crownsville Hospital to honor the importance of oral history. And you touched that uh, earlier on. Can you recall any reality breaking moments from your process because of cow surfing? I'm sure you came across information that were reality breaking and or anything in between. There were a couple reality breaking moments. One of them for me is a man named Paul Lurz, who's one of the characters you'll meet in the book. He worked at the hospital for 40 years and he worked in different roles in administration, but really was dedicated to children who were sent to Crownsville and who many cases couldn't find people who wanted to adopt them or care for them or bring them into other state agencies for foster care. And so he was kind of a surrogate father to a lot of kids at the mm-hmm. asylum. And years later, when the hospital started to close down, no one in the state or in leadership had a plan for how to rescue the history. So this guy goes around the hospital and he finds really important historical records and patient records that have been infested with bugs and asbestos and all this stuff. And he just starts cleaning and bringing all of it. And he gets fireproof cabinets and he puts them and he locks them away. He helps the state set up an archive that still exists to this day. And then in his own attic, the man is in his nineties now. I have been friends with him for now 11 years. In his attic, he has stored an unbelievable amount of history and photo, mm. original photographs from the hospital. And I think what a reality breaking moment for me was in talking to him. He didn't have any concept of how important what he had done really was. <laughs> he told me this information. And, you know, as a journalist, you have these moments, right, where maybe you're talking to a source and then they casually at the end of the interview go, oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention. And then they tell you the most shocking piece mm-hmm. of information. Oh, oh, yeah. Do you have any interest in seeing the photograph I took of this thing that no one has photographs of? So this is the only Mm -hmm. one, you know, that's how he revealed this to me. I'm in this man's home and he's like, oh, I do have some boxes upstairs you might want to (laughs) see. So he goes upstairs and he brings these old crates that say Crownsville Hospital down, sets them on the floor. And I go through this stuff and a ton of the, the documents that are referenced in this book original sources that no other researcher, no other journalist has ever published. I and some other people who have tried to look into this place had spent years trying to find. And so I think it kind of actually brings me back to the point about listening and humility, because if you're just in a rush and you're moving through and you're like, I got through my checklist, time to go, you won't be open to those experiences where someone shocks you with a new layer to their world, to their experience, to what they know, what they have and can enrich you with. And so that was one of these moments where I was sitting there and my head was like spinning with this new information and photographs I'd never seen before that changed this book and this story. And he was there like blinking at me like, what? I thought this was trash. <laughs> I was going to burn him away after. Hey, he's like, I had no plan for what to do with these. And I'm like, you might need to call the government. Like we need to get this stuff formally <laughs> into an argument. Yeah. Wow. It does speak to your, as you say, your principle of your approach, right? You talked about the core tenets of journalism that you utilize that allowed you to have these reality breaking moments and have access to these archived information that no other person had, which is amazing, right? So what does journalism mean to you in this current era of misinformation and disinformation and headline culture? 
I think about this every day. I think anyone who is trying to do journalism, trying to host honest conversations is, is worried about the state of our country, really our world. It's not just the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think about what we do as being a line of defense for democracy, for the protection of civil society. I think of it as a public service, as a gift I try to do for others. And of course, it's your career. So you're also trying to figure out how am I going to survive and make money and do things. So it's not all altruistic. But no one really goes into journalism expecting great things for themselves. What they do hope for are great stories, great realizations, and great resources that they can give to their communities. And I think that applies to every journalist of every background, whether they're at a local outlet in TV and print journalism and podcasting. All of us are so excited by new people, new stories, and new ways of looking at the world. And I think that finding some of these stories that still surprise and break through and actually give your reader or your listener, right, their own reality-breaking moment, something that kind of pushes them through a wall that maybe they didn't even know was there, that that is the sort of highest form of journalism and gift that you can give to others. And I think it's one of the only ways we can repair in the future you know, I think there are there is the sort of democratic crisis that many of us fear that mm-hmm. we're in at the moment. But I think there's also a communal one of just kindness to your neighbors, empathy and understanding and a willingness to have dialogue. And I think journalism can play a role in that, depending on the, the story and the medium through which we tell it. And so that's what keeps me here at a time when my field is so under fire. We've had people calling us the enemy of the people criticizing what we do. I keep showing up every day because I still believe in that. I still love to do it. And I still have these moments where I meet people who are changed by stories I've told or people I've interviewed. And that's everything. And so just, I try to still believe that that has an ability to transform our country and our world on a greater level. And I think it's okay that it's being disrupted. I, as I work at NBC But I think it's cool that there are people who are just getting started on YouTube and doing their own thing. I think that the disruption, the change, it's it's scary, but it also gives us an opportunity to build something new and better. So we kind of just need everyone to step up to the plate and commit to that. But that doesn't mean that it's not that's (laughs) that it's not hard. Um, And I know and I know that so many people have intense feelings about journalism and news right now. But. I really do believe that a great story still has the ability to change people. And the day I stop believing in that, that would be the day that I leave this field. Otherwise, I see myself doing this forever. One of the best journalists I know is on YouTube. His name is Kavizela. Amazing, amazing journalist. He was able to reveal the corruption behind like Logan Paul's crypto scam and a bunch of other things. I was going to ask about your own mental health recovery process throughout all this, because even for therapists, we need a therapist. And there's a saying that all clinicians are undiagnosed patients themselves if you do not do the work, right? I want to table that, though, because I think we're getting close to the really crux and the thesis of your book, the dark, the light. And I do truly believe that it's the stark contrast that reveals the beauty, if you really think about it. So a thesis of your book is to highlight the very clear and dreadful connection to today's justice system. As we established, I work as a forensic clinician, so I live in that world, working with Superior Court in California. 
Can you explain this connection from your extensively diligent research and why is it really important for people to know? So what I track at the end of Crownsville's existence, sort of going from the 60s to the early 2000s, is the way in which the deinstitutionalization of these big mammoth asylums that we all used to know about in the American sort of consciousness, right, and in our popular culture, they start to dwindle down, get shut down, and we see a rise in the prisons and jails in the U.S. A lot of the resources and funding are moving to more, you know, punitive and carceral projects. And a couple things are all happening at the same time. The civil rights movement, more protests are breaking out across the country. But at the same time, there is more understanding of in our popular culture and our literature of people with mental illness. And so there's sort of this struggle between sympathy for people with mental illness, but also a lot of anger in the country and additional protest and a police response to that protest. So one of the major questions I pose is, okay, if we look at our criminal justice system now and we see there is a way over representation of people of color and we see our mental health care system has kind of dwindled down and doesn't have a lot of space, beds, access to folks. And often it's people of color who have the hardest time getting access into care. Is there a relationship there? In Crownsville, the research that I've been able to find, the interviews, says yes. What I hear from people is that they saw their patients get deinstitutionalized, pushed out of the hospital in the latter half of the 20th century, and then brought into the criminal justice system through petty crimes that they committed, through you know, being picked up because they were homeless on the street through uh, substance abuse disorders and things that would have previously brought them into a hospital for care, start landing them in the county or city jail and then setting them up in a certain pipeline. Girls who were in foster care who would have maybe received some emotional support at Crownsville instead find themselves funneled into the criminal justice system as well. And so it's not as easy as just saying, okay, the hospitals shut down and then all the people in the hospitals went to prisons and jails. That's impossible because broadly across the U.S., we know that actually the majority of the hospital system was white. But Crownsville is an interesting example because it was so diverse, because it was majority black. And it looks much more like the demographics of our justice system. Comparing Crownsville to our justice system, I think answers a lot of the questions we might have about why our country looks this way? Why are so many jails and prisons full of people who need mental health care treatment? Why are our streets full of people in many cities like Los Angeles and New York? Why are there so many people crying out for help and so little being done about it? I think Crownsville is a really interesting way for us to trace that. And I think, well, people have, and historians have long made the connection between those two systems. Can we talk about the irony that even in the current justice system, they have one of the best mental health care treatments. Since I, you would know, you, you know, even better than me. I mean, so much of the story is irony, right? Because mm -hmm. like at the same time that books and movies, right? Like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest are coming out and people are starting to speak up for patients and demand that they get taken out of these big asylums, that they get welcomed back home, that people support them, give them medication. We're also seeing protests and criticism and, conflict break out all over the country and people are starting to criminalize behaviors associated with mental trauma and strain and pain. And so how do those two things, how are they both true at the same time? But that's one of the things that I think makes our country so 
fascinating, so unbelievable, so stressful sometimes is that these things, often there's two things going on in the United States that don't make sense at the same time. And, and that's just the way this country is. And I also think it's some of what can contribute to people's mental trauma at times. If you get conflicting messages about the world and your place in it, that's what many black psychiatrists told me is that they thought that some of what was actually leading so many black people to suffering was that they didn't know their place in America. They didn't know if people believed in them and liked them and wanted them here, even though they'd been in the country already for hundreds of years. How much do they have ownership of it? Are they really American? Do they have a future here? These are all questions that on a day-to-day basis, the clinicians believed those patients were wrestling with. And I think so many people today of so many backgrounds, black, white, immigrant, or otherwise can relate to the pain of wrestling with all of your place in the world and the way in which that might contribute to your stress, your anxiety, your sadness. But I mean, you probably, you see this from a whole nother angle than I do, right? Like I see it on the journalistic side and, and talking to people about their observations, but I bet you have these conversations with people in your day-to-day work. But that was another reality breaking moment for me that a conversation with a black psychiatrist who told me like black people have like a split consciousness They believe they are both some of the original Americans because they were brought over here before the country was even formed, but they also believe that no one wants them to be American at all. And it's very hard to live with both of those thoughts at the same time. I resonate that deeply because that's the cultural assimilation that a lot of uh, Asian dysphoria and a lot of Asian Americans and other immigrant Americans go through day to day, right? I'm a third culture kid because I was born in Paris. I lived in Korea, China. And then I came to California and went to a boarding high school. So for the longest time, I did not know where I fit in. Am I Asian? Am I American? And no other countries in the world put high emphasis on your racial markers, your skin pigmentations, right? They see, and especially for biracial folks, like they really struggle because they feel like there's only one box that the society will put them in, right? Half black, half white, half Asian, half white, doesn't matter, right? So it does really talk about the assimilation, the forces at bay, and the struggle that we feel. And we don't really have a choice because we live in this paradigm. And fighting against the system, questioning the status quo requires tremendous grace and difficulties. And it's so intricate and complicated. I was actually speaking with an Asian American novelist who I got to meet at an event a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about how both of us had elders in our family who didn't trust the mental health care system. And they came from very different cultural perspectives on that, but kind of had come to the same conclusions, you know, don't do therapy, don't go to a psychiatrist, you can't trust these people. And we were talking about how frustrated we used to be at them, you know, so angry at them, like, you know, get with the times, you're so like stuffy, you know, you you criticize your elders sometimes because you think they just can't get with the way the world is. But one of the things I loved about my experience reporting on this book which also brought me closer to people in my family, including elders who I had to interview to tell parts of this story, Hmm. was that instead of having a a critique of them or kind of looking down on them for the way in which maybe they were afraid to access certain types of healthcare, I had a, a whole newfound grace and empathy for them because I realized, oh, when you look at the history of this, Black people 
Asian people, indigenous people, Latino people have been treated really poorly in these systems. And so they're not irrational. They're not just making up lies and rumors and theories in their mind. They had certain experiences with the American medical you know, institution that led them to feel this way. And they were looked at by often white bosses or colleagues in a particular way. And so they developed defense mechanisms. And so I needed to approach them. I realized some of my elders who I had been mad at, I needed to give them a lot of kindness and love back. And once I approached with that attitude, I found I was able to talk to them about so many things in our family history and our lives they previously didn't open up about. I needed to just stop looking down on them a bit for the way they had come to their conclusions. And as soon as I kind of opened my heart to the fact that they had been hurt, it changed everything. And so she and I had this great conversation and, and it was just amazing to see how, I think for so many communities of color, there is that tension between like your grandparents and you, you know, your elders and the, and the new generation and how they see America and the world and, and what the right way to be is and kind of the techniques you can use to break through some of that and create an intergenerational dialogue. Motivation interviewing would be a very practical approach to start these dialogues with your families. Uh, it's free, readily available. It's one of the most practical techniques that a lot of therapists use. So I want to use that as a segue into your chapter 18. So I love the quote from your book, in chapter 18 that you start the book with or the chapter with, I believe that madness is part of all of us all the time, that it comes and goes, waxes and wanes by Otto Frederick. This speaks to, like for me, I interpret that as this speaks to how all of us are multidimensional, right? Like your grandparents that you alluded to, they both embody wisdom, the reverence that they, we owe to them because they came before us, also with some outdated information because of their mental trauma and hurts. So why did you pick this specific quote? I felt the exact same way. I mean, you, you just got like the nail on the head right there. And I also believe that too often in our culture in the United States, we see things kind of in a black and white binary of sick and healthy, black and white, right and wrong, left and right, all the, these different binaries. But usually binaries are wrong. <laughs> they're, they're not the real story. And I think it's the same when it comes to mental health. All of us live with traumas, pain, grief. All of us have the potential to be a patient. Many of us are only one life experience away from needing care. And that if we stop looking at, at certain people as healthy and others as sick, certain people as good and others as homeless, if we instead recognize that we have a country where there are a lot of people who are right on the line between many of those things, who live in a state of precarity, who need our empathy and support and collaboration and kindness, that we could have a very different culture. And I also think people need to see more of themselves in, in others who are seemingly unlike them, but the truth is they're really not. You know, as a journalist, I see this, right? I have friends who have gone abroad and covered wars and come back completely different people. One life experience can change them forever. And so you're not better than others because you haven't lived something yet. And that was part of, I guess, the, the feeling that I wanted to give people at the back of the book is you look at some of these people start to be 
recasted as criminals, brought into the criminal justice system, pushed out of hospitals, but not welcomed back home to communities. A reminder they're not so different from you after all. We are all one step away from the trajectory of life that we never expected in the first place. Yeah. Oh, man. So many of my homeless clients and patients, people will be shocked to know what they used to do before they reached the point of homelessness and their illness and whatever catalyzed their events. Of course, I can't share because it's not my place to tell their stories. But I do want to go into what you said in passing just now. And you talk about this in your book. Antonia, tell us, how does America decide who is sick or criminal and who is worthy of care or irredeemable? I purposely never directly answer that question in the book. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> as a journalist, you sometimes want to pose questions for people to take the information you've given them and to explore their own belief about it. It kind of actually comes back to the binary point, right? Of like, we have this obsession with, with these binaries, with right, wrong, sick, healthy, black and white, and there has to be another way. And we can't have full community support for things like mental health and mental trauma until we release some of our attachments to those things. And so I think for me, where that question comes from is when you look at the reporting, when you look at the history and the reality here, you see a country that has set up a culture in which Black people are almost never going to be seen as worthy of care. Black people aren't going to be worthy of empathy. They're not going to get the best of the treatment that's available. They're going to have the hardest time finding therapists and psychiatrists who look like them. Historically, you know, in the earliest period of the 20th century, they're going to be waiting last in line in doctor's rooms and never able to even get the first appointments and the best of care. And so when you look at that legacy and where we are now, I think the reporting, the community that I spent time in would answer that question by saying that, that often black people are left out and, and excluded from being able to be seen as redeemable, as healable, as worthy of care. Take just the difference in what we saw happen in the crack epidemic and the opioid crisis. A lot of the language our culture used around those things, the priority around care and, and, and an understanding of mental health in one and the demonization of a black community in the other. I think you see these patterns time and, and time again in our country. And I don't believe that pattern has to remain that way forever. I think that some of these ways in which we cast certain communities can be redone, but it will take a new dialogue, a new program, a new vision for treatment in the U.S. I want to zoom in on two concepts that you underlined. Uh, one is social linguistics and one is neuroaesthetics. So social linguistics implies that the language we use day to day are culturally influenced and constructed. Concrete example, firemen. By calling them firemen versus firefighter, you're creating this social narrative that only men get to do that occupation, not women. And if you replicate and iterate that over time, the implication is massive. And this resides on a subconscious level. So for anyone that's interested, I encourage them to dive deep into social linguistics and even maybe do some self-evaluation to see what are some of the languages that you carry day to day subconsciously. The metaphors, the analogies, that you're subconsciously shaping your landscape internally. 
because what's in the internal always externalizes. The second thing, and you talked about it, the mainstream representations, neuroaesthetics, it's a really cool field where the study shows that like neurologically, what you see impacts what you perceive as aesthetic or good looking. And as Asian American, I really struggle with that because until recently with the K-Wave, the mediatic rise of K-pop, K-culture and Asian American representations in Hollywood, we were non-existent. And I do want to go into some tready waters after this because yes, I think the black Americans were neglected for a long, long time. But as Asians, we are still not seen. It's even the language white, black and brown. Where are we, right? And I think that ties into some of the things we're going to talk about. But neuroaesthetics is really relevant because unless you see it, you're, you don't, you're not going to internalize that as possible. That's why mainstream representation is very, very important, especially for any minorities. I'm setting the stage for this heavy, heavy hitter questions. I would love to hear your thoughts. My podcast got pretty big on Clubhouse when Clubhouse was a thing. And when George Floyd, the tragedy happened, I witnessed countless hatred and intersectional racism between the Asian people and the black people. And I was talking to this, a lot of folks, a lot of civil rights movements, organizers, because I lived in Philadelphia at the time. They told me that this is an indication that the systematic racism exists today because the problem was created by the white folks historically. But instead, we're having this infighting culturally. And in this case, it was black people versus Asian people. One of the really prominent or pronounced narrative I heard on Clubhouse was why should we stand up for you when the anti-Asian hate were happening? The murders, the tragedies. But I do want to bring this into my question, like not just what we can do about it, but like why are these things happening? And are there really places for reconciliation without really challenging the system at bay? Uh, otherwise, I feel like we're still going to go after each other, even with the most recent uh, affirmative action case. Right. So I think it's really, really relevant, if not, it's getting more pronounced. I see these same things and black communities are talking about this all the time. You know, how do we have these conversations? What's the right way to dismantle a lot of this? And I do think that one of the things that's in my like reporting and in my historical observations that I think sometimes contributes to some of the pain there is mm. that. It kind of it touches on what you were describing, right? Like in Hollywood, there are a lot of black actors and black films, and there has not been as much support in recent years, often for Asian American leads or Asian stories being told with, you know, of course, some great examples of things breaking through. And so there's sort of this question of, you know, often black people are treated so terribly or represented terribly in media, but they also get sometimes these great opportunities and I think that how I've heard it described to me, right, is that because of the history of Black people's place in this country, going back hundreds of years, they're a kind of hyper-visible minority, right? Like, and they're a hyper-target of a lot of discourse and, and, and of course, have been a hyper-target of a lot of terrible things <laughs> that have happened in, over the course of our country's history. And so in some ways, they kind of are targeted and and harmed because of that, but also elevated because of that to a place of hyper-visibility. So they're seen a lot and their our culture, our music is out there a lot, you know, and so that can that comes with some good things as it also comes with some terrible things. And so I do think that sometimes there's this like crabs in a barrel 
thing that happens among minorities of harming each other or disagreeing in unhealthy ways or battling each other when the root source of the problem is something different than the case of George Floyd. It's like the culture of policing, right? I think it was so fascinating to me when I covered the Tyree Nichols case, for example, because that's a case of all black officers and a black victim. And so one of the things I was able to do is have some conversations with people who maybe aren't very interested normally in conversations about police reform, because in this, in that story, right, we could kind of strip race away for a moment and you could say, well, there's a culture of policing that we see and there's patterns here, whether it's a white police officer, a black police officer, an Asian police officer, we see, see a certain culture built into how policing works in the United States. And should that be reformed? Should certain changes be introduced? What ways in which can we have like cross-cultural dialogue about this? And so I think when you look at some of these cases in recent years, there's been opportunity for those conversations. I think we haven't always been successful at them. Certainly there's so much work to be done. But I do also see, I do see like really good in that too. Like I have been able to see groups that have come together and held dialogue. Like I remember seeing some of the friends of mine who went to, I was covering George Floyd protests as a reporter, but I saw friends out there asking for reform. Many of them were my Asian American friends who were like, mm-hmm so woken up by this experience and we're out at protests more than more than I was covering them. And so <laughs> I think that that there were a lot of myths were shattered in that moment. There were there's opportunity and there's also a lot of like cross-cultural dialogue and work that has to be done. But I do think a lot of it can be answered when you're looking at history and you're looking at the way different groups have been racialized and treated in the US. While there are similarities to Asian American and Black American experiences. Like you look at incarceration and internment, for example, right? But then there are also a lot of differences. And so it it has these different reproductions and it comes with all these different cultural traumas and pain. And I think one of the things that's always hardest is when you see two people who, two groups of people who have been hurt, right? Turn on each other rather than, Mm -hmm. than, than collaborate. But I still think that that's very possible. I think I think that these things are very normal and they don't move on a line like this. It's much more, you know, progress is just not a straight line. It's it's a, a kind of ever evolving project and people have to wake up every day and decide they want to believe in and believe the best in their neighbors again and again and again. And I think that's like the project of our country also. Like this is a although some people don't love it, it's a multicultural nation. And so to be a part of a multicultural democracy means getting up every day and being like, okay, I'm willing to talk to people who disagree, who look different than me, who have a different view of history than I do. And for me, as someone who tries to be humble and, and have that intellectual curiosity, I try to see that as hard as it can be every day as something that is actually a privilege and a blessing and an opportunity and a driving force for me to tell stories like this. Like I want to have these d- debates and difficult conversations. I think the only way you can is by giving your piece of the story, your side, what your knowledge to it and see what other, other people bring back to you. Are you familiar with the melting pot theory? Yeah, broadly. Once again, social linguistics, it shows up. A lot of people used to say that almost like very proudly that oh, America is a melting pot. 
Well, if you've been to a melting pot, you know that all the other ingredients get absorbed and overtaken by the dominant and primary ingredients. In America, the flavor is white as of now. So I think the better theory to describe what United States is, is a salad bowl. A salad bowl, all ingredients are spotlighted and highlighted and honored. The cherry tomatoes, the lettuce, right, the seasoning. And because you said it, it is a multicultural country. And there needs to be a place for all cultures, all minorities. And I think that's the only way that hope and changes can happen. But I do appreciate the hint of optimism, despite you being a journalist doing this work. I would have to give up otherwise. You would, you would yeah. truly have to give up, you know? So. Because yeah. <laughs> I left the policy sector in Philadelphia because I got jaded in six years. But I do want to go into the heartfelt moments you talked about earlier. And it's actually one of my favorite parts of your book. I always read all the epilogues, every single book. I know a lot of people skip that, but I love epilogues because that's when authors get really, really personal. And I think this ties into George Floyd, the different cases we talked about. So Antonia, in your heartfelt epilogue, you talk about the death of Jordan Neely. I want to zoom in on the bystander effect that you mentioned in passing of how many subway and train passengers that did not do anything watching the young man struggling in his last breath. He should be the same age as we are, 30. So in mainstream media, we often are split between the narrative of the perpetrators and the victims. But how about the bystanders that witnessed many of these atrocities and chose to do nothing? I asked one of the nurses from Crownsville about that in the epilogue, right? Faye Bell, who has worked for decades in a hospital, has seen violence up close. At one point in the book, I describe how a patient who came back suffering from Vietnam almost killed her and assaulted her. And so she has had these kinds of frightening encounters, right? Where someone comes into a space and something very unpredictable happens. And so she taught me so much in our conversation because I actually didn't really, I was in so, so much shock over it. I actually couldn't articulate in, at that time when I was talking to her how to make sense of Jordan Neely's story and his death. But to me, she was like, what I see is like a, a culture that's sick, right? Mm. And, you know, she talked about how clearly Jordan Neely is suffering, how clearly, in her view, Daniel Penny, who arrives on the scene, is reacting from a place that seems to not show empathy and enough care, in her view, to, to Jordan Neely. And in her view, that's a form of illness or of suffering or of a lack of humanity. And then she also mentioned, you know, the idea that all these people are sitting there and you can see in videos, not even in some cases, having much of a reaction to what's happening at all, that that's a, a symptom of something being very wrong in your culture, too. And so it was one of these reality breaking, I'm opening moments of journalism, of, of you know, getting to know others in the world for me, because she was able to take this from being less about one man's actions or how, whether or not it was the right thing to do to try to do something to Jordan Neely after he entered that, those train doors. She kind of wanted to bring it to a place of, well, what does this tell us about our country and all of us? And the way in which when something happens, even if you're not Daniel Penny, you have a role to play in it too. And I think that's really important because I think that, and this is one of the points I make in the epilogue, 
I think that one of the things that makes people so hesitant to solve crises involving mental trauma and suffering is that we really want to say, well, that's not my fault. That's not my community. That's not my family. Maybe that person didn't work hard enough. Maybe they made bad choices in their life. You want to make it about the, just the people involved so that you can shirk some responsibility and act as though you've maybe played no role in how others suffer. But the truth is that we all actually have played a role from the way that we vote and the decisions that we have our elected officials make to the way we walked, walk by certain people on a train or on the street and all the other little and big choices that we make every single day. When you see so many people in your country suffering and you are an active participant and taxpayer in your country, you have to ask to what extent is this my fault? To what extent could I do more? And that's one of the things that also inspired me about so many people in the book, right? Janice Hayes Williams, another character who's a local historian. The story of Janice Hayes Williams for me was such a powerful reminder because she has spent the last 20 years restoring a cemetery on the hospital grounds and taking care of patients who were buried with numbers but no names and trying to give them some dignity in the afterlife, right? And this is her small way of giving to her community. And you don't need to be a trained doctor. You don't need to have a lot of money. Maybe you feel you don't have a lot of power over what your elected officials do, but that doesn't mean you can't get up and do something for other people and try to take care of somebody else. And that's an active choice we can, we can all make every single day. And maybe our country would be better if everybody moved a little bit more in that direction and took those small steps more often. The real lesson from the case of Jordan Neely and from everything I had learned from the people of Crownsville was that despite all the horrors of what they'd been through, despite all the ways in which their community had been pushed down and disadvantaged and disrespected, they got up and wanted to take care of each other. They got up and wanted to envision a better future and a society that encourages people not to do that, to not see themselves and others, to back away from problems is a, is a sick society. And a lot of healing could be solved by people's small individual actions. Not that there doesn't, there isn't collective responsibility, not that there needs to be, or, or that you can ignore the political solution. That's absolutely a huge piece of this, but we could get started by small things that we do every day. I told my mentee, uh, one of them last week, where a lot of us, we live in this paradigm that opportunities demand actions. That's actually not true. Actions create opportunities we have to reverse that process, right? And I tell my mentees and, you know, just folks and even friends, like, if you're not gonna partake and contribute or do something about it, stop complaining. Complaining incessantly without actionable items is a waste of time for everyone involved. So if you're gonna complain, do something about it. If you're not gonna do anything, you're gonna choose inactivity, then don't complain because you're making the choice by not doing anything, right? Uh, Marcus Aurelius, the last Roman emperor, one of the greatest Stoic thinkers of all time. I read the book Meditations recently, and he talks about doing nothing is a form of injustice. And I think that really applies here because as a former policymaker, a lot of people get discouraged by this monstrosity of a system, the government, right? Even the language, us versus the government. But we forget, deconstruct that. Government is comprised of individual 
decision makers who are us, who just happen to choose that path. You happen to choose journalism. I happen to went from policymaking to now psychotherapy. So if you look at, oh man, how can we ever instill or foster change? Oh, the government, it's unfixable. It's this big monster. If you think like that, there's no hope. But you're like, hold up, let's reel back the curtain and oh, government is comprised of people just like you and me. Different color, different thought processes, sure. But I think we have to dismantle and really deconstruct to create an entry point. Otherwise, it's too bleak, at least for me. Yeah, I think that believing these things are unsolvable and becoming apathetic, it's just, it's the end. It's, it's giving up is the worst thing you could possibly do. And I, I think the other thing I've learned from many of the people I got to know in this reporting, right, is that by just showing up and doing something small, by just trying every day to take care of a patient, to solve one issue for them, to push back or investigate mistreatment from the state, or to try to do something to just smile at someone who hasn't been cared for. I think about the example of a boy who was suffering at Crownsville for months and refusing to eat and a nurse who would mm -hmm. sneak into his room at night to try to bring him snacks he might like. That was just her trying to find something to, to give him, to show him, I want you here. I want you alive still, right? When you look at the people who get up every day and just try to do those small acts of kindness for others, often if you ask them what they'd like to see changed in the country, what ideas they have for policy and solutions, they have some really good ideas because they actually did the work. They stepped up close to the problem. They tried to get to know people. They walked the streets and tried to do something for others. I think about Faye Belt, one of the people I spend a lot of time with in the book who during the pandemic would pack these baggies with masks and socks and snacks and bananas. And she would just find her former patients who were living on the street, check in on them, give them stuff. She has former patients who work at grocery stores and she sometimes goes to those grocery stores just so she can see them and then check in with their parents later to make sure like, hey, are they doing all right? You know, and that's, she doesn't, nobody's paying her to do that. She doesn't have to do that. She retired. She could just give up on those patients and not go see them ever again. But when you talk to those people who do do that, those small acts for others, they often have the greatest vision for what could change on a societal level. And so perhaps if more of us did that, there would be less apathy we have better elected officials who had, who had <laughs> ideas and, and more will to get those ideas enacted and executed. As a journalist, I shy away from trying to tell people what to do. I'm not, I'm never going to, I'm not running for office. It's not my job to draft a bill, but I think my work can introduce you to people that inspire you to see the world in other light, to be less in your own corner, to be less alone and angry and to take those small steps to make the world a little bit better. That's, that's, like, that's like all I've got. That's like, that's like all I can do is like put my heart in this book and, and give it to other people and hope that it, it helps them see something a little different, talk to someone they maybe wouldn't have talked to and go do something or care about something that maybe they previously thought they had no role in. That would be a mic drop moment, like when Obama dropped the mic twice. But <laughs> <laughs> we will be remiss not to talk about the prevalence of medical racism and prejudice in the United States, historically and even now in certain parts. I wanted to save this question towards the end because, as you know, powerful stories outlive all of us and stats and facts don't work. You have to package it to relatable stories 
for people to see entry point into one another's life. So that's why I wanted to create the stage for stories and your research and everything in between and save some stats and facts towards the end or anything you feel called to share. So can you share any compelling stats or information that you discovered during your research process that you think is especially important to be included in today's conversation? Yeah. Well, one stat that really sticks with me right now in talking to pediatric psychiatrists is that the rate of suicide among all minority youths, so not just Black children, but Native American children, Latino children, Asian children, they're skyrocketing. That many clinicians believe there is a crisis, a mental health crisis specifically for children of color in the United States right now, and that not enough people are making those children feel seen, safe, supported in their many different communities in the United States. That's something that really sticks with me and worries me. Another stat is that she had found that of the Black children that she works with in Philadelphia, that they report about five instances, big and small, implicit and explicit, of racial discrimination each day. And that that number of experiences has an extremely degrading effect on those children over time. The other thing that really sticks with me is that she told me that in her research, less than half of the children of color who come to emergency rooms in the midst of a crisis are able to get connected to ongoing care afterwards. So that means, again, that, think about that. They show up to an emergency room needing help, showing signs of mental distress, and less than half of those children get a therapist, get a doctor, get another appointment after that visit to the ER. So they're going back home and they're still suffering and they're not continuing to get care. And to me, that was just the most heartbreaking, um, alarming call to action. You know, I think adults often, they have their things that have made them callous over time. They're critical of others. They maybe feel that Certain adults who are struggling don't need their care and their tax dollars and support, but children, can we all agree children need more from us? That those stats aren't acceptable? And so to me, that felt like, whoa, it woke me up. And I had already, when I had this conversation with the psychiatrist, I had been doing this work already for years and and those stats still shocked me. Yeah, and I actually... Reminds me to bring back what I said, how justice system have the best mental health care system. I don't, I don't mean best as in the highest quality or caliber, best as in most readily available. It's because there are mandated treatments, mandated clinicians, mandated funding. So it is the most readily available, but the quality is not the best. And with that, I do want to say something that's similar to you as you talked about the adolescents and children who seek help. They don't have the continuum of care, right? Which is literally one of the non-negotiable in healthcare. Literally, that's every physicians, nurses get trained on that. And sure, these just sound like words, but the real life implications for the families, for the communities, and the individuals themselves are extremely detrimental. It's hard to articulate the level of impact if you extrapolate this on a larger scale. And that is happening every single day in the United States, not to mention the stats you've mentioned. So I really love the call to action because like I said, actions create opportunities. And I think these stories allow us to be more clear and be up close into what is truly happening that a lot of the mainstream medias or a lot of these things aren't portraying. 
And that's why I really like enjoyed today's conversation because it's not just a practical, it's not just informative. I think there's a lot of through lines that I think encourage us to do something about it. Because at the end of the day, just talking about it, it just self-gratifying, right? We feel good talking about this. This was an amazing conversation. But what's the point of self-gratification if nothing good comes out of it? I forgot to even mention this earlier in our conversation, but I think you know from reading the book that I have family members who have suffered with these diagnoses, including one who's very much living and, and dealing with all of that right now. And they had good health insurance, and even they had a really hard time getting continuing care and being able to stay on the care that was prescribed for them. And so that for me was another wake up call moment of, oh, like, you know, my family has good resources. The very educated family, we have access, we have people we can call, we have doctors in our family who could ask people for favors, right? And even we were struggling to get this person help and to get connected to care. We were put on wait lists for community mental health resources and told that if they mess something up in an interview that they were not going to be eligible for certain services. And we were just living day to day in fear and in panic for this loved one who was suffering. And um, if my family, with all the knowledge and the resources and the connections and people we could call and people I've met through journalism who I could lean on for some advice, if we were struggling to get it done, I can only imagine what so many Americans are dealing with at home it breaks my heart. Um, and that to me has made, compelled me to be someone who speaks up, compelled me to be someone who shines a light on the patients, the employees who do this work. I think it's, it's, it's my small thing. I guess if I'm trying to find my way to do my small act of goodness for others every day, it's, it's okay. I'm going to elevate other people's stories. I have a platform. I have a publisher. I have a TV show. You know, I have TV shows. Like I can put others on them and give them their chance to speak to the country. And I just, so many people in our country are in need right now and their voices aren't being heard. So I think all of us just need to listen a little bit more and, and do what we can with what we learn from them. The genesis of this podcast and the mission statements I used to uphold and still uphold is elevate the stories then you elevate the most. And I think that's exactly what you speak to. And I love when you said that your families are privileged in terms of access to information. That's one of the deepest privileges we have, accessibility. And you went to Harvard, I went to Penn. I'm bringing our education background in because there is no prestige to pain. Regardless of who we are, the prestige that we carry, it does not mean that there's no need for us to seek help. Because I think we put in a, in a society, we put productivity and success, air quotes, on a pedestal. And that's all people see. But what about the underlying pain, right? One of the most common or popular YouTube comments are, oh, I'd rather cry in my Ferrari than my Toyota Camry. No, you don't. If you really unpack that for someone to cry in the Ferrari, the level of misery they must carry after they've amounted to the epitome of success by society, that means it is hopeless. When you're crying in a Toyota Camry, it sucks too, of course. Nothing against Toyota. I love Toyota. Internally, you think, oh, at least there's way out. There are ways I can climb up. But when you're carrying or labeled or viewed as a certain prestige, the way out seems a lot smaller and dimmer. So I really want to spotlight this with what you just said, that there is no prestige to pain. Help seeking and the need to seek help 
must be ubiquitous for all of us. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And the call to support and to listen to others, because I think that when you're in the Toyota, you might look at someone in the Ferrari (laughs) and imagine they don't have problems or you are in the Ferrari and you think that the reason someone's in a Toyota is because they just didn't do enough or work hard Mm -hmm. enough or, you know, everyone's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think for me, my family's struggles have just taught me so much about kindness and patience for others. It's taught me to really prioritize my own mental health and my own physical health and care. And It's also really taught me to start cherishing people's best moments and who they really are and what they try to bring to the world every day instead of their faults or their diagnosis or their struggles. My loved one is so much more than what they've been going through the last several years. And while I'm sure some of the people who've interacted with them along the way or you know, been present for some of the most challenging moments might see them in a certain light. They're never just what that darkest moment was. And one of the reasons they spoke to me and actually offered support to me in this book and and talked to me about their own experiences was because they wanted people who are suffering to know that there is a way forward, that they're more than their diagnosis, that they're more than whatever pain and frustration they might have with their lack of care or the way they were treated at a certain facility. Your journey is so much bigger than that. And this Mm. is part of your story, but it's not the story. And I think that's so important for people to carry. Because I think when you're crying and you're down, you're lost, you think this is like it. You're in this, like, you're in this tunnel, right? Often that's what pain can feel like, like isolation and loneliness and everything's kind of crashing down on you. I have definitely felt that way in some of the hardest moments of what happened in my family and the struggles that I went through while I was reporting on this book. But when you step outside that for a moment and you also see more of yourself and other people, I think you're brought out of that fog a bit and there's so much opportunity there. Um, and so that, that for me has been just the story has changed the way that I see our country. It's changed the way that I see mental health care systems and it's changed the way that I live my day-to-day life and the kind of kindness and patience I try to show other people. And so <laughs> I was telling my agent the other day, I was like, I finished this book. It's been on my spirit for 10 years. If just like one person read it and learned something and cared a little bit more about mental health care treatment because of it. Cool. All right. I, I, <laughs> I got what I needed to get out of it. And I'm done. <laughs> that one person was me. So mission accomplished. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> I'm done. No more. No, no yep. more. <laughs> Retirement comes. Yep. You're good. Fold your hands. Whew, that feels good. That was such a harmonious and just cohesive way to wrap today's conversation. Of course, we didn't go into the genesis of stigma in black communities, but of course, we talked about it throughout. I think what you said is precisely the only way to transcend labels and boxes and stigma. No one story and no one label and not one box defines who you are and your self-worth. That is innate to every single one of them, right? When you see a toddler or infant crawling and they fail to walk, you don't say, ah, they're not going to be walkers. Ah, they're hopeless, right? It's the process of change takes time. And before the process of change takes place, we must be gracious and be open and hold space 
just like we give all infants opportunity to start walking, <laughs> right? So you don't just say, ah, they're hopeless, you know, right? They're never going to walk again in their lives. With that being said, though, I do want to be respectful of your time, Antonio. Before the re metaphorical red carpet moment, are there any other theses or messages you feel like we haven't talked about today that you want to project onto a massive messaging board for the world to hear and watch? I don't know. I feel like I've poured my heart out to you. I've learned more about you and your work, which is amazing. This has been such an enriching conversation. I'm so grateful that you wanted to talk with me and, and to let me be part of this community that you've built. Yeah, I think, I think I've said everything that I wanted to say. Feel real, my spirit feels good. <laughs> awesome. And I was able to use up all my nine anchor questions that I wasn't sure. <laughs> so I'm glad the preparatory process came into fruition. But all right, with that being said, while your spirits are on high, when you're wearing this vibrant red, uh, where can people <laughs> check you out, get your book, maybe showcase the hard copy that you just got recently? Oh, yeah. You don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> this is my book, Madness. It is going to be out January 23rd, 2024. You can pre-order it everywhere now, including local bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places that you know and love. And... I'm going to be on tour around much of the United States. So keep an eye out for events in your cities like Atlanta, like Baltimore, like Boston. I am going to be all over the place. And I'm so excited to meet people and to have conversations just like this one. I think that mental health is really, again, it is a space where there's so much opportunity for dialogue, for change, for healing and for people who don't spend a lot of time together to come and work on a shared mission. So I hope that madness plays its own little part in that. And I'm grateful to everyone who was part of this journey with me and who's going to be part of the next phase of this journey with me as readers. Thank you. No, uh, that's a wrap, but uh, shout out to uh, Lauren as well for being gracious, sending me the PDF version of the book way before. So I didn't have time to read through it. It wasn't as as thorough of a read as I wanted to due to time limits and all the other baggages, but I feel like I was able to really read through the thesis and the quirks of what you wanted to, or intended the book to be. And, you know, if you're happy about this conversation, if you come to LA, we'd have to have round two talking about journalism and other things that's beyond the thesis of your book because you represent so much more than just a journalist. And that's the people I seek out, people who cannot be confined into a box people who want to burn down boxes because all of us are multidimensional. Uh, with that, Antonia, thank you for your time. I know you woke up super early today for this conversation on a Saturday, but uh, it's cool to unite the West Coast and the East Coast where I spend so much of my time. No, your, your day is earlier than mine. So thank you for making time and for welcoming me into this space. This was a great conversation and it's so great to get to know you and to be able to tell your, your audience, your community a little bit about madness. Thank you. And to all the listeners, if you have made it till this end, I have one request. If you derived any value or any call to action or any increased optimism, please share this episode with one friend. It's free for you, but invaluable for the podcast's growth. And as always, I hope you seek curiosity over fear. I hope you come back and join us in the next week's conversation of Discover More. Thank you for spending this time with me and the amazing Antonio. Thank you for tuning in.